Chapter 38 of Kit and Kitty by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 38 None. At this beginning of my great trouble, I used to be worried, more than common sense would warrant, by the easy way in which other people look at my distress, even while I was among them. If anything occurred to make them laugh, they laughed with all their hearts at things, in which I could perceive no joke at all. I dare say they were right, and I was wrong, but I felt that I should not have laughed at all if the tables had been turned upon them as I wished they had been. That is to say, if they had been in bitter grief, and I had been standing outside to help them. For the policemen I could make all allowance, because they must get seasoned by their profession, even as the lawyers do. But it did seem a bit unnatural at first, that some men, to whom I would gladly have lent my last shilling but one, if they had wanted it, should be ready to put their hands into their pockets, not to feel if there was anything there for my good, but to enable them to enjoy a broad grin at leisure, if the least bit of laughable nature turned up. But one thing I will say for the women, there was scarcely so much as a smile among them. They could understand what I had lost, and they knew, perhaps from self-examination, that a good wife is not to be got every day. The heavy cloud had been pouring down rain in volumes and hail in lines, when, with Celsi Bill and Mrs. Bill and Polly lagging after us under a broken umbrella, my uncle and myself came to Honeysuckle Cottage and found Sergeant Biggs and Constable Turnover, with their oilskin capes running like a tiled roof and their faces full of discipline. Wouldn't go inside, gents, till you came. No warrant being out and no instructions received. Always gets into trouble when we axe on our own hook. We led them inside, for there was broad daylight now, and the cloud began to lift, and the rain came down in single drops instead of one great sheet. As they stamped about and shook themselves in our little passage, scattering grimy wetness like a trundled mop, I wondered, with a bitter pang, what Kitty would have thought after all her neat work if she could only have seen this. Turn over, you come after me. We makes this inspection together, mind. And what I sees, you sees, and corroborates. Though it ain't a case of murder, so far as we know yet, we must keep our eyes open, the same as if it was. Everything comes to us, and nothing comes amiss to them that does their duty. This sentiment was much admired by Constable Turnover, and my uncle whispered, Let them do exactly as they like, Kit. They are a pair of fools, but we need not tell them so. We shall have them on our side at any rate, and if they don't do any good, they can do no harm. Leave them entirely to their own devices. This quite agreed with my own view of the matter. When a crime has been committed, we call the police, as in dangerous illness we invoke a doctor, for the satisfaction of our own minds rather than from any hope of being helped. And in the former case we have this advantage— the thing becomes widely spread, and distant eyes are turned on it. All in order, gents. Not a lock been forced, not a door broke open, so far as we can discover. Sergeant Biggs was beating his hands together from the force of habit as he came to us in the kitchen, where we were sitting drowsily. Two windows open, and some rain come in, but no signs of entrance by them. The young lady have gone of her own accord, and left no sign for anyone. Time of disappearance not exactly known, you say, but somewhere between five and ten o'clock, suppose. Please give particulars of dress, height, and complexion. We know the young lady well enough, of course, but 
We like to have those things from relatives. And the dresses beyond us, ladies always are so changing. Mr. Kitt says her gray cloak is gone and brown bonnet. White chip hat hanging on the peg. Looks as if she meant to go a goodish way, but not much preparation for traveling. There was a little black bag, sir, you said you could not find. Very sorry to trouble you, sir, when you were so downhearted. But I must ask you just to look into them drawers in the ladies' bedroom, and especially to see if any cash is missing. Excuse me, sir, I meant no rudeness, for I had leapt up and was ready to strike him at the suggestion that my darling could have robbed me. He's doing his duty, Kit. Don't be a fool, cried my uncle as Biggs threw his arms up in defense. Must give up this case, sir, said the sergeant without anger. Unless you allows us to conduct it in our own way, we are bound to know all that can throw a light upon it, and nine times out of ten when a woman, beg pardon, a lady, runs away from her husband on the sudden, she collars all the cash and all the trinkets she can find. Don't mean to insinuate for a moment that this young lady done anything of the kind, but for all that I am bound to put the question, and Mr. Cornelius can see it, if you can't, sir. Very well, I will go and see, I answered, having sense enough to know that he was right. And you can both come and see for yourselves, if you like. Perhaps you won't believe it unless you do. At any rate, you come, Uncle Corny. I ran up in haste to our little bedroom, as pretty a room as one could wish to see for its cheerfulness, airiness, and fair view between the clustering climbers of the broad, winding river and the hills beyond, all to be seen either over or amid a great waving depth of white and pink, where the snow of the pears put the apples to the blush. Very plainly furnished as it was, our little room looked sweet, even in its desolation, and as lively and delightful as the bride who had adorned it, my Aunt Parcel had given us a pretty chest of drawers, a real bird's-eye maplewood, which she had bought at a sale somewhere, and we kept all our money that was not in the bank in one of the top drawers, which had a tolerable lock. This was the proper place for Kitty's purse and mine, although I never had one, so to speak. At least it was always empty. Whenever I had any money fit to spend, it was generally always in my waistcoat pocket, and it never stopped there long if I came across anybody who deserved it. But I never went out with too much at a time, for it is not safe to have nothing left at home. The key was not in the drawer, of course, but I knew where Kitty kept it, and there it was as usual. I could have wept now, if I might have made sure of nobody coming after me, when I found all the balance of this week's allowance for housekeeping uses in a twist of silver paper, such as used to be common, but is seldom seen now, and my darling had not made much boot upon the store ever since last Saturday, for our butcher, who wanted her to run up an account, being in love with her as everybody was, although he had a wife and seven little butchers rising, had made believe that he could not stop to weigh the last half-leg of mutton he sent up. Kitty had told me of this and lamented, while unwilling to appear distrustful of him, for an honest tradesman dislikes that, though he often has to brace up his mind to it. I put this residue of our fifteen shillings into one corner, as a sacred thing, and then I went to the brown metal box at the back of the drawer, where we kept our main stock, with a dozen of my wife's new handkerchiefs piled over it to delude all burglars. I had bought her a dozen at less than cost price, as the haberdasher vowed, at Baycliffe, 
and we had been reluctant to be so hard upon him, but he said that he was selling off and we must have the benefit, and I lifted them now with a miserable pang, for my love had kissed me for this cheap but pretty present, and she had marked them all with her own sweet hair. I have often been astonished in my life, as everybody must be, almost before his hair begins to grow, but mine, which was now in abundant short curls, would have pushed off my hat if I had worn one. When the money-box came to my eyes half open, and as clean as a spade on a Saturday night, every banknote was gone, and every sovereign too, and even the four half-sovereigns which we had meant to spend first when we could not help it. I have never loved money with much of my heart, though we are bound to do as our neighbors do, and perhaps it had been a little pleasure to me to have more than I ever could have dreamed of having, through the great generosity of Aunt Parslow and the timely assistance of Captain Fairthorne, but now my whole heart went down in a lump, and I scarcely had any power of breath as I fell once more upon my widowed bed and had no strength to wrestle with the woe that lay upon me. That my own wife, my own true wife, the heart of my heart and the life of my life, should have run away from me of her own accord, without a word, without one goodbye, and carried off all our money. Come, Kit, how much longer do you mean to be? My uncle's voice came up the stairs. Let him alone, Beggs, perhaps he is crying. These young fellows never understand the world. Some little thing comes round the corner on them, and they give way for want of seasoning. He was wonderfully bound up in his kitty, and however it may look against her now, I will stake my life that she deserved it. You peelers see all the worst of the world, and it makes you look black at everything. I would lay every penny I possess, which is very little in these free trade times, that he finds every farthing of his money right. "'though I have often told him what a fool he was "'to keep so much in his own house. "'He seems an uncommon time accounting of it,' "'Sergeant Biggs spoke skeptically and retired to the kitchen, "'for it did not matter very much to him. "'Getting no reply from me, my uncle came up slowly, "'for a night out of bed tells upon the stiff joints "'when a man is getting on in years. "'Then he marched up bravely and laid one hand upon my shoulder. "'What are you about, Kit?' "'Breaking down, old fellow? "'You must not do that with these chaps in the house, "'or the Lord knows what a lot of lies we'll get about. "'Money all right, of course. "'No doubt of that, my boy.' "'I could make no answer, "'but pointed to the drawer, "'which was still pulled out to its full extent, "'with a little smile which expressed as well as words, "'What a fool you must be to keep your money there.' "'He looked in, and saw the empty cash-box,' and turned as white as his own pear blossom. Then he took the brown box in his thick right hand and turned it upside down, as if he could not trust his eyes. How much was there in it? But perhaps you did not know. Oh, Kit, Kit, has it come to this at last? He spoke as if I ought to have been robbed by my own wife a long time ago, and was bound by the duty of a husband to expect it. But my spirit rose, and I jumped up and faced him. Every farthing of it was her own, I said, and she had a perfect right to take it. It is part of the hundred pounds Aunt Parcel gave her on our, on her wedding day. There was forty-five pounds in that box, 
and the other fifty-five was invested according to your advice. I would send her that also if I knew her address. It was all her own money. You may ask Aunt Parslow. I have no right to a farthing of it. Kit, you are a very fine fellow after all, though you do take things so lumpily. But answer me one little question. Why did your aunt give her that hundred pounds? Because she loved her, as everybody does, or did, because she was so kind and good and loving. No, my boy, not at all for that reason. But because she married you, Aunt Parslow's nephew, the money was yours, in all honesty, not hers. Or at any rate it belonged to you together. She had no more right to take that money without your consent than I have to walk into Baker Rasp's shop and walk out of it with the contents of his till. You must look at things squarely and make your mind up. Expel her from your heart. She is a light of love and a robber. Oh, Kit, Kit, that I should have brought you into this. And I did think that I knew so much about women. My uncle shed a tear, not on his own account or mine, and perhaps not even for the sake of women, but because he had loved Kitty as his own daughter, and he could no more expel her from his heart than I from mine, at least without taking a long time about it. I was moved with his grief, for he was hard to grieve, and my wrath at his injustice was disarmed. I put back the empty box and locked the drawer, for I knew that it was useless to argue with him. This is the second great grief of my life, he said in a low voice as if talking to himself, over and above those losses which are inflicted on us by the Lord as time goes on, and the other was through a woman too. I will tell you of it when we have more time, for it may help you in your own grief, Kit. But now we must quiet those fellows downstairs. I wish we had never called them in. I would rather lose every penny I possess and start in the world again as a market porter than let this miserable story get abroad. We must take your view of the case before the public and tell them that there is no money gone except her own. The Lord knows that I am not a liar, and he will forgive me for stretching a bit this time. Or perhaps you had better do it, because you believe it, you know, and so there won't be any lie at all. You go down first, and I will come behind you grumbling, which no one can say is an ungrateful thing now. This seemed the proper course, although in my misery I should never have thought of it, until I wished that I had done so. The question as to the right to that money lay between myself and Kitty, and as she had doubtless considered it hers, to brand her at large as a robber without allowing her chance of explanation would be most unfair, and would only add another pain to a story too painful already. So I went down and told Sergeant Biggs that my wife had taken a few clothes in her handbag and a part of some money that she had lately received as a wedding present, but had left the balance of her cash for housekeeping, as well as most of her trinkets in the bedroom drawer. He was much disappointed in this and shook his head to disguise the blow received by his sagacity. Beats me for the present at any rate, he said, but time will throw more light upon it before we are many years older. You hold on, sir, and do not go about too much. Half the mischief comes of that. 
A party comes to us, and he says, Look here, I leave the whole of it to your care, Sergeant. You understand these things, and I don't. Everything as you do, I will back up. Magistrates, witnesses, lawyers, dog-stealers, whatever you find needful, up to a five-pound note or more. And after that, what do we feel? Why, ready to go through with it on our best metal, you might say, and come down with cash out of our own breeches' pocket for love of nothing else but duty. And then we gets crossed, like two dogs a-coursing, by the other party's track, with his nose up in the air the very same as if he never had come anigh us. So I says to turn over, now one thing or another, either they must let us do it all or nothing, and if we do it all in a hunt-the-slipper thing like this, we must know all the ins and outs first from the beginning. Then, says I, we can give our minds to it, turn over. And he answers, yes, sergeant, but do they mean to tell us everything? And now that's the question before you, sir. We will think about that and let you know by and by, said my uncle, who had listened to this long oration. Not that you ever find out anything, Biggs. Still, it is a comfort to believe that you are trying, and now come to do what you ought to have done long ago, make a careful examination of the footprints by the door. It has been raining pretty sharp, but it all came from the south, and the important marks are on the north side of the lane, according to what my nephew saw last night, and the shower won't have touched them with the door shut too. Bring some paper and a pencil and your old joint roll, Kit. Not that we shall ever make out much. He was right enough in that last prediction, for although I had fastened the door in strict keeping with the moral of the proverb, and no rain had pelted the ground outside it, Yet a greater effacer than rain had been there, for the spot being on a sharp slope and below the crown of the road, or the lane, I should say, a strong rush of water had taken track there and washed away all the dust, and then the heavier substance, leaving rough pebbles with sharp edges sticking up, as clean and unconscious as before they saw the world. Nothing to be made of that, said Biggs, nor any footmarks anywhere else after all the rain as had fallen. Only one thing to do now is to inquire of the neighbors and folk as were about last night. End of chapter 38